Action Park Media. Take a bottle, take a bottle, come on. Welcome to another episode of Victory, the podcast. I'm Kevin Connolly. And I'm Stock Tip Dave, filling in for Doug Ellen and Kevin Dillon. Victory! Wow. Oh, yeah. What do they call Dave? Irish crickets. I also hear audio crickets when people are turning off the podcast when they realize that it's just me and you. Nobody knows this. Doug does not know. We're doing a podcast without Doug Ellen. He's going to be devastated to find out that you're sitting in for him. I mean, if it was honestly Scotty or Sophie Julia or even Akeem, but you filling in for Doug Ellen, how does that feel? It's a big seat to fill. Great. I'd actually love to have his reaction on camera when he listens to it. Yeah. I think it'd be pretty funny. That'd be good content. For those of you that don't know Dave, Stock Tip Dave gained notoriety here at Action Park Media when uh, we sent Dave with the GoPro camera to go pick up Gary Busey. How was that, Dave? It's definitely an adventure. Did a lot of stuff I never expected. He liked me so much when I dropped him off, he refused to let me leave his house. And what did I tell you to tell him? I had to tell him that I had the company car. And what did he say? He said, well, you're on company time. You're with it's a- company business. It's company business. Company business. He's like, you don't need to go anywhere. All right. Also, Stock Tip Dave is a bit of a social media whore. He loves his social media. The guy posts things. I mean, Stock Tip Dave just uh, sent me an article about DMX. Like, Dave's the guy that posts <laughs> things a year later than he thinks he's breaking news. Very rarely does Dave break news. But, Dave, where, what are you at Instagram follower wise? Like 958, 960. 958, 960, as if you don't know the exact number. Well, I do, maybe I do, after I this, know the exact number. May, what, what is it? 958. 958. All right. Well, maybe after this episode airs, we can get you to crack the thousand mark. What is the over under on how many followers? Dave gains from this victory episode. I think he cracks the 1K mark. Would you like that, Dave, to see a 1K in front of your your Instagram? Absolutely. All right. Well, victory fans, let's do it. You know Stocktip Dave. He's been around from day one. He is as loyal an APM soldier as you get. Now, before you go turning off the podcast, (laughs) we are going to have a great guest that's going to join us after the break. Tiller Russell, who is probably, as we speak, the hottest documentary filmmaker in Hollywood. The Night Stalker, Operation Odessa, The 7-5. I mean, this guy is playing at such a high level right now. He does great movies, and he also does uh, a a podcast here at Action Park Media called After the Doc. Scotty, would we agree? Hidden gem here at APM? Oh, hidden gem totally. And if you like documentaries and you're always looking for something after that last episode finishes, this is right up your alley. Right. So Tiller interviews other documentary filmmakers about their documentary. So the first couple episodes of The Night Stalker, uh, and it's him doing a deep dive to what happened after The Night Stalker or what didn't make it into the cut of The Night Stalker. So if you watch a documentary and you love the documentary, flip over to Action Park and listen to After the Doc with Tiller Russell because he does a great deep dive on what happens after these documentaries. It's not only Taylor Russell documentaries too. It's all right. directors of really prominent, well-known documentaries. So. Right. So we, we started with two Night Stalker episodes just because they were just so great. We wanted to hear what he had to say, but then he interviews Mark Lewis who did maybe my favorite docu-series, Don't Fuck With Cats. Yeah. Amazing. Right. And then again, it's, it's Tiller, it's filmmakers. We have a lot of filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers, writers. This podcast, After the Doc, is a is a conversation between filmmakers and their journey and what they went through during and then eventually what happens after the doc. So Tiller Russell will be joining us after the break. Dave has been uh, gracious enough to uh, to uh, fill in for Doug Allen in, in, in uh, heavy shoes. These guys are on vacation. These guys are on vacation. Is, is Dylan ever coming back? Uh, listen, we're watching, the, you know, I, I look again, I, all I see is shirtless photos of this guy in Greece. I mean, 
I saw him. He was yelling a victory on a boat in the Venice Canal. That was a month ago, but that's <laughs> my point exactly. No, that was good. Uh, hey, look, he's keeping the podcast in mind. And look, it's the dog days of summer. I mean, eventually somebody was going to have to go on vacation. Uh, it was inevitable that at a certain point we were going to do a podcast without Doug. It feels a little weird. Did he make it there without his car uh, running out of battery? I, uh, yeah, he's a pretty smart guy. I'm sure he, he found his way to uh, Sonoma where Doug went uh, on vacation for the weekend. But look, this is the way it's going to be. And we had the option of not doing an episode. But um, for our, our listeners out there that like sort of our bonus episodes, this is a great one because uh, Tiller Russell, man, he's a... Uh, He's he's deep. He's a super, super interesting dude. So I'm looking forward to that. Any last thoughts before we go to the break and bring on Taylor Dave? No, that, that documentary is great. I binge watched the whole thing in one afternoon. I didn't know. You're any, talking about the Night Stalker. Yeah, the Night Stalker. I had no idea any of that existed. It was, you know, before my time. I literally was like opening my eyes to something I've never seen before. And I just couldn't stop watching. They didn't have the Night Stalker in Florida. They didn't cover that stuff in Orlando. Or are you just young or what? I was probably like two years old when all that happened. So I had no recollection, didn't remember. It was never told anything. And then it just opened a whole new. Thing. All right. A whole, a whole new, new can of worms. Is that what you're trying to say? No, Dave's trying to say something, Scotty. But I, I got one last question. What if this episode just really pops off and Stock Tip Dave is like a heavy hitter? Is there any chance that he just fully replaces Doug? Because he's got his whole Hollywood Ways thing going on. So, you know, you never. Well, maybe this could be your audition for Hollywood Ways. Ooh. We'll see. We'll see what happens with your social because Doug I, demands a big, big, big social presence. I know lots of movies. Dave, you're a loyal <laughs> guy. What would you do if Doug Allen comes to you and says, Listen, come with me. You be my number two on Hollywood Ways, but you can't. You can't be involved with APM or 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 that. What, what would you say? Would you pass on the opportunity? Would you come to me and say, Kev, here's the here's the offer I've been given. What what should I do? What what would happen there? Be very stressful, conflicted, because <laughs> obviously I've been so loyal to APM. I've, I don't know. It'd be a very very hard decision. I don't think I could do it without getting any kind of blessing from you guys. But I'd prefer to stay here. Right. But I couldn't just go and do it. I'd have to get like. Yeah, Action right. Park's blessing. Right. You, well, there you go. Well said, Dave. Well I don't know said. if you're getting the blessing, Dave. Uh, I was going to say, it would be, the, the battle lines would be clearly drawn in the sand. No, we want Doug's podcast to be to be great. But you would, you would watch, you would sit and watch a movie and cover a movie with Doug. Maybe he'll have you on. Absolutely. I know a bunch of random facts about random movies from 1980 to now. Really? That's your, that's your time window? 1980 to, yeah. <laughs> to present day. What's your favorite movie ever, Dave? My favorite movie ever. And please don't tune out. We have Tiller Russell coming right, up after right. Dave bores us to death. Please. No, I'm a, I was a huge fan of Big Lebowski, Kingpin, right. Something About Mary. I still, I'm a fan of Catch Me If You Can. It's one of my favorites. Really? As well. You're a big Leo guy. You love Leo. Dave loves Leo. Of course he does. <laughs> you talk to him at Taco Tuesday. It's one of the crazier things about Stock Tip Dave is that you both claim if Leonardo DiCaprio is walking down the sidewalk and Dave's walking down the sidewalk, Leo would know who Stock Tip Dave is. Well, he would call me Buddy. He wouldn't say my name. Right. That's no, probably fair. But he, it's fair enough. But he knows your name. He just uses Buddy a lot. All right, Dave. Well, I think you did uh, a pretty good job your first time. And you look relaxed. Yeah, it was Half Xanax. How was therapy? Dave went to therapy today. How was therapy? It was fun. Got to talk for 40 minutes. Did your therapist get annoyed when you took my call in the middle of the session? Because that's part of your problem. We know this. Your, <laughs> your phone obsession. So did, did you get an eye roll from the therapist when you took the call? We were talking and I was like, oh, hold on. It's my, it's my boss. He's, he's asking me where I am. He's like, he's like is it okay? Are you, do you need to go? Do you need, should, we, should we end this? The therapist is like, I'm happy to wrap this one up. When I, <laughs> happy to wrap this one up five minutes early if you got to go, Dave. When you got to go, you got to go. Uh, no, I was like, I was, I was fine. I was like, I, he knows I've got eight minutes left and I'm out of here. I love eight minutes. Very specific, Dave. That's I'm, I'm a numbers guy. I just, I just know numbers. <laughs> you know numbers, right. 
You do, you do. You're, that's why how you got the nickname uh, Stock Tip Dave. But you're going to be around, Dave. We're introducing you to the world. I, I would love to offer you your own podcast. I just, I just think, I don't know. I'm not good solo, but I do well with others where I can feed off of their energy. Right. You want to be the number two guy. You want to be the number two chair. Yeah. It's like you don't want to. Let's take a practice. Say, all right, welcome to another episode of Victory. I'm Stock Tip Dave. Let's hear how you would bring us in. Action. Welcome back to Victory the Podcast. This is Stock Tip Dave from Action Park Media. And I'm Kevin Connolly, and we're happy. To- that was good. That was good, Dave. I like Not it. Bad. Not bad. Not bad. I, I got to tell you, it's about a thousand times better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but that's good. We're going to get you to a thousand. That is our goal with this podcast, aside from pissing off Doug Ellen. Kevin Dillon doesn't know if APM folded since right. he's been gone. Guy did two <laughs> movies and, and, and has hit 14 different countries in Europe while we've been sweating to death here at Action Park Media. But yeah, Doug is going to, Doug is going to. He's going to love this one. He's going to love this one. You did a good job. Stick around. Listeners out there that love our bonus episodes and deep dive with filmmakers, it's going to be a good one. Tiller Russell coming up after the break. Thanks, Dave. All right. Welcome back. Victory the Podcast. As we promised, we have a, a very special guest here today. Tiller Russell, who is at the moment the hottest documentary filmmaker in Hollywood right now, coming off The Night Stalker. But you maybe also have seen The 7-5, which is my personal favorite. Operation Odessa. I have those three in my top five, FYI. Oh, man. Thank you for saying that. And now you made the jump to the narrative with Silk Road. So welcome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan as well, so I'm stoked to be here. So we have a lot of filmmakers, aspiring filmmakers, writers, and uh, we cover lots of, you know, lots of different parts of the business from, you know, director of photographers to, to regular directors. But the documentary filmmaker is, is it's interesting because it's a, it's a different path, right? So walk me through how you got the big gig. You know, it was a weird, I mean, everybody's road is always weird and unpredictable and only even looks like a road when you look back on it. The long and short of it is I grew up in Dallas, Texas. My old man was in the DA's office that was depicted in Errol Morris's movie, The Thin Blue Line. And so I grew up knocking around, you know, the courthouse and precincts and cops and crooks and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And eventually I became a crime reporter, kind of bullshitted my way into a job at a newspaper with no real qualifications other than knocking around with cops and crooks. And when I was there, I suddenly realized like, I've got a press pass. I can use this to like, go talk to filmmakers. Like, how do I learn how to do this? You know? And I had a sort of miraculous and lucky meeting where Errol Morris had a movie coming out. And I got the last interview of the day with him. And he was like, man, I'm so tired of answering the same questions with the same answers. Do you just want to go get a steak and a bottle of wine? We were in the like Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco. And I literally was like, dude, there is nothing more on earth that I want to do. And so we went up there and had this kind of fantastic drunken evening together. And at the end of the night, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you're either going to spend the rest of your life writing about people like me or you're going to go try your hand at this. And I literally filed the review, called the paper the next day and was like, I quit. And, and, and then, and that was kind of the moment. And for him, it was probably just another night on the tour. He probably doesn't even remember, you know, but for me, it literally materially changed the course of my life. And then from there, it was kind of, you know, the thing with docs and it's, you know, it's changed a bunch over the years, but like once upon a time, if you had a nose for a good story and you had kind of good bullshit and could work with people, then you had the potential to make a doc. And so I kind of, you know, knocking around like, okay, let's go shoot a documentary on cockfighting. Let's go do this and let's go do that. And then little by little, in a way, I sort of feel like I've always been making the same movie. You know, the 7-5 is the same movie as 
Operation Odessa is the same movie as Night Stalker, is the same movie as Silk Road. You know, in a way, it's the, I think, kind of the thin and porous line between cops and crooks is what I have been fascinated with. And so, you know, some of the stories walked in the door and called me from like, you know, so I'll get a call like, yo, man, I robbed more banks than anybody on earth. And I'm like, let's go to lunch. You know, um, or, you know, somebody will, you know, a producer will have an idea and say, man, I think there's a movie here. And um, and then the doc thing is, you know, you have to have you have to have a story, you have to have an arena and you have to have people willing to tell it. And the thing that at least the way I've been doing them is it's not just about the character, it's about the telling of it. So whatever it takes to get that story. Michael Dowd, you got to play one way. Tarzan, you got to play another. The cops in Night Stalker, you know, you got to kind of, everybody's got to feel like, man, this dude is going to go to the end of the earth to tell my story. And that's the promise that I make anybody. It's like, if you, if you, if you park it with me, uh, I will go to the end of the earth. So would you say that the 7-5, was that your first big hit with the 7-5? How did, how did you get that job, to be completely honest? You know, I, ha- I, have, I, have a, I have a wonderful um, producer and longtime friend, Eli Holtzman, who had watched those, the like Mullen Commission hearings. And in the wake of Dowd getting busted, there was this massive kind of police corruption scandal in New York. And so the city began a commission to determine, was this an isolated instance of corruption or is this systemic? And so it was the Mullen Commission, you know, after Serpico, there was the Knapp Commission. Then 20 years later, it's Dowd and, and the chaos of that. And so, you know, Eli showed me this tape and he's like, dude, you think there's a movie in there? And I was like, hell yes, there's a movie in there. And so I went to New York And I started knocking around with all the different people and for months actually developed a completely different movie. And this happens with docs all the time is you think you're making one movie. And I thought I was making a movie about the Mullen Commission and the biggest police corruption scandal and the investigation afterwards. And then I got hip to Dowd and I thought, man, who is that guy? Because that guy's got a story to tell. And we use the like, you know, the software the bounty hunters use to, to find people. Right. So it was, I started sending, the idea was, this is a terrible idea for anyone else, don't do this, but it's what I did. Um, I literally used the, that bounty hunter matrix to get like last known addresses, wherever you'd received a piece of mail. And I found the crew of corrupt cops and I figured whoever you are, whether you're you know a homeless vet or whether you're Snoop Dogg, if you get a FedEx, you're going to open it, right? So I literally sent hundreds of FedExes all across the country to all these people. And these were cops that had wanted to disappear. Like they'd bought social security cards from dead people and shit. Like they know how to vanish when they want to vanish. And so I sent them a letter and the letter said simply, I'm making this movie. I've got everybody else. If you want to tell your piece of the story, then name a time and place and I will be there. And if you think I'm full of shit, if you think I'm not the guy to do it, then I'll bounce. And it was absolute bullshit. I didn't have anybody. But the phone started ringing. And and the question everybody had is, has Dowd blessed this? Wow, that's interesting. And I couldn't find Dowd, right? Because what happened was when he got sent to the joint, you know, doing, I think, 11 and a half years in the, in the federal penitentiary, it was right at the divide between the last days of analog and the digital. So there was no information about this guy. So I spent months like, like you know, knocking around, calling people, whatever. And eventually on his, on his like bounty hunter sheet, there was one name. And it was a woman doctor. And I thought, like, who in the hell is this? So I literally picked up the phone. And on a lark, I'm like, yo, is Mikey there? And she's like, yeah, let me put him on. And he hands me the phone. And Dowd's like, so what the fuck is this? What do you want to do? You know? 
and 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 I and I hopped on a plane, and um, he did the you know did the like drug dealer cop thing where he's like, okay, get on the LIE, you know, you get off at Hopog or whatever, and then he would make me get back on the train, go to the next stop. And Are then you I got kidding out. me? He made you jump, Michael. Dad made you jump through all those hoops. Now get back on the train. There'll be a guy with a yellow umbrella. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure he was clocking me the whole time to find out, like, is this guy full of shit? Is he really going to do it? Now I see what he looks like. And then eventually I go get in the car with him and he starts like driving around at 100 miles an hour and like talking about his story. And I'm like, fuck that other movie we thought we were making. This is the movie. And so I called Eli and I was like my producer and I was like, dude, we're making the Crooked Cop movie and this guy's the center of it. And it went from there. Well, you know, the ironic thing, too, about documentaries, it really is about a subject matter. But at the end of the day, you're still watching a movie and you need your movie star. And Michael Dowd was an incredible subject. I'm sitting there literally falling off the couch. I can't believe I can't figure out. Do I like this guy? He's so candid. He's done his time. He's done some terrible things. But what a what a subject for a movie. Well, right? I- and, and well, that's what, you know, and, and it's, you bring up a brilliant point, which is docs need stars, just like features need stars. And like, it doesn't matter if the story is super interesting. If the storytellers aren't like riveting and can totally captivate you, then it's not going to work as a doc. And so, you know, with doubt, as soon as that like anchor piece dropped in, it was like, okay. We got a movie. And the thing about Dowd that fascinated me was because I had the same, you know, and he and I have become, you know, friends over the years, you know, through all the circus of the 7-5 and its afterlife, is there's a weird childlike thing to him. You know, that dude walked around a federal penitentiary for 11 and a half years as the dirtiest cop in New York. And yet when you meet him, he's like a kid who's like, wants to knock around and like, let's go get a couple of beers, you know? And so... That weird combination of like, dude, this guy doing this nefarious shit, but at the same time, he's so um, weirdly childlike in a way too, that it made me have conflicting feelings. And Tarzan was the same way. You know, I go to Tarzan in a like Panamanian prison to meet him. And he's like, hello, I'm Tarzan. Welcome to Panama. You know, and I instantly was like, dude, this guy's, a, this guy's a star. This guy's got a story to tell. I grew up on Long Island. So Michael Dowd, strangely, is from my home. Uh, he, you know, his kids went to the same high school as I did. He's so your I, people, bro. Yeah, he's your oh my people. God. Yeah. And, and he's, such, he's such a big personality. And, um, but I mean, let's face it, you compare him to Richard Ramirez, when you're stepping into these worlds that are aside from dangerous, I mean, clearly you're a guy that's got, got some balls. You're, you're, you're jumping, you know, you're jumping on trains and getting in the car with, you know, Mike Dowd and and these guys. So you're not, you're not afraid to roll your sleeves up, but at a certain point, do you go, what am I getting myself into? Do I want to live in these people's heads? Do I want them in mine? Because also they, these, these, uh, subjects, there's a, a manipulation factor to some of them as well, right? I mean, they want to make sure the story is told their way. And, and do you- it's, 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 all, it's, all, it's always a hustle. And it's like with, you know, with crooks in particular who are storytellers and who are hustlers and manipulators, there's always some level of game involved. Right. That's part of what we're fascinated about. Like, that's why Scorsese makes, you know, Scorsese movies, because it's like those people operating in that world, they're living at a life and death stakes that us as civilians, we don't live like that, where every time you walk out the door, you're strapped. Every time you walk out the door, you could get smoked. Like it's, it's for real for those people. And in a way, you know, 
I'm a chronicler of those people. I'm not those people. So there's always, there is always this divide. And I was actually talking to Errol Morris about this yesterday. You know, Janet Malcolm, God rest her soul, famously said uh, that there's a sort of predatory nature to, to journalism in general, right? Like you swoop in and you're stealing somebody's story in some way or another. And I've always been like very mindful and careful about that because while it is transactional in some way or another, you're, you're making a movie together. I don't want anybody to ever feel burned or, you know, unfairly treated or used. And so, you know, my promise to them is, Hey, like you got to tell me, I'll tell you the truth, but you got to tell me the truth. Like if there's a body in the trunk, I got to know there's a body in the trunk so that like we can work around it or, you know, steer into the torpedo as the case may be. But there is a weird level of authenticity and honesty that's required on both of our parts to do it right. What's the access like to Tiller Russell? If I'm Mike Dowd, you know, and, and what, what, what's my access like to you while we're, while we're making the movie? When, when you, when you're, we're in it, it's all in, you know what I mean? 24 right. hours a day, whatever the thing is, because what happens is I, I, I saw once Guillermo del Toro at the DGA and he's, and he had this like amazing, one of the most brilliant minds I've, I've come across, but he said, um, once I start making the movie, once I enter into the movie, Everything in the universe is bringing me something to do with the movie. If I turn on the radio, if I see a sign, I notice a font, like whatever it is, all of that stuff is something coming through the ether that is informing the movie. And so when you step inside that bubble, it's the same thing with actors on a feature set, right? Like at a certain point, you're building this bubble and you're, you know, this circus big top tent. And when you step inside, you got to totally be there for each other. And then at a certain point, then you have to step out. You know, and it's like now I'm making the movie. There, there may be shit in here that you don't like. There may be things that you resent that you disagree with. But my job is to tell the most compelling and factual and you know entertaining story possible. Um, you know, true story possible, but do it in a way that's that requires total buy-in from everybody. You know, jumping to the Night Stalker. What an incredible piece of filmmaking on your end. And one of the things that jumped out about me, and I want to, I have a couple of questions about this is there's the talking head documentary, right? Where if somebody's talking and, and they're, what they're saying is interesting enough, you can, you can, you can watch it, but you made a movie within inside the movie of, of the night stalker, the shots, the, the, the locations were so specific. Everything was done for a reason. What I, am I right about that? Does that come with a yeah. bigger budget or, or how, how does that work? How are you able to make those decisions? Some of it is look, you know, night stalker was you're doing it in Netflix. It's the biggest movie studio right. in the history of the world. And it's an iconic story and an iconic city about an iconic killer. Um, so it had all of the ingredients to be something big. And then it becomes a question of, this is an LA that doesn't exist anymore. Like it's, you know, like the seven, five literally doesn't exist anymore. Literally, literally, literally doesn't exist anymore. And like the night stalker LA is gone. And yet there was this incredible archive of material that existed. You know, it was the kind of the beginning of the 24 hour news cycle and all the coverage that existed. There's photographs, there's, you know, recordings of, of, of Ramirez, you know, from, uh, that, that, you know, that appear in it, that, that an author had done interviews with him. And so it's like collecting all these materials and then once again, it's like looking at the materials and saying, okay, now what does this want to be? This wants to be like 
It wants to be a James Elroy novel. You know, it, it, it ties into this entire history of like L.A. noir from Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett through Elroy through whatever. Like this is going to be a piece of that um, continuum. And so then it's where do we find the locations to film these guys that are either the spots like where we shot Gill was it's a cop bar, Stephen's Steakhouse. And like, if you're not a cop and you're not in that world, you're not in Stephen's, you know? I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions to it, but like, it's a spot. It's been a It's a known spot. cop bar. Right. And then, you know, with Salerno, it, I wanted him to find his own spot for it. And, and that we shot at Jones, right? And Jones has nothing to do with the story, but it's dripping in old LA, you know, from like the red vinyl and the, the decor, and all the, of it. Yeah. The decor, exactly. all of it. Right. And so it's, finding those elements that are evocative of the spirit of the movie. And then, you know, when we go to shoot the aerial days, you know, we have these amazing drone technology and they're in docs and in commercials and movies and whatever, but there's a certain sameness to all of it, right? Like there's a certain altitude at which drones fly. There's a certain set of lenses that are typically used. And I was like, what's 1985? 1985 isn't digital. It's not drones. It's a helicopter. So like we went and got like helicopters, you know, and got like old school vintage lenses and, you know, took a night flying through Los Angeles at night, you know, flying over Dodger Stadium, flying on the freeways, having um, period cars that are, you know, zipping down that we're then doing like, and, and again, this is, and maybe it's too inside baseball and it's boring, but. No, we love know, inside baseball. Can't be inside okay, so, enough. So like, Zoom lenses were part of the vernacular of, you know, 1985. And so then it's like, great. So that it that tells us that we want to be able to do these like zooms on vintage lenses in a helicopter that's giving you that view of it's it's Roy Schneider and in, in, in Blue Thunder, you know, or whatever. It, it's, it evokes that thing. And so every single choice like that was determined by the time, the place, the people. And so then every piece of it that exists has to be in that same film grammar. Do you feel the need when you tackle a story like The Night Stalker, which uh, somebody like myself, I would have considered myself pretty well-versed in sort of the story and the facts. I'm kind of a true crime junkie, if you will. Uh, Do you have to consider new information or a new story? Obviously, you made a decision to tell the story through the eyes of the cops, which I found interesting. And it was more about the cops and their lives and, and, and less about Richard Ramirez, his home life. Was there, was there not, I don't want to say blowback, it was a smash hit, but would they, would, did that come into question, um, sort of your angle on it? And, and yeah, do you I feel mean, the need it, to have a new, say some, tell, give the audience some new piece of information somewhere along the line? Yes to all of the above. Yes, there's blowback to it because, um, you know, it's weird to be releasing a cop centric, you know, movie series in the middle of the like Black Lives Matter, you know, crisis and policing. And so, but at the same time, this is a story from 1985. It's not about right now. And so staying true to that material, like a decision has to get made very early on. Whose POV is this from? And what we determined very quickly was this needs to unfold as it unfolded for the homicide cops. Bodies are dropping. Thousands of clues are coming in. How the hell do you figure this out? The MO is different every time. Victims rage and age from seven to you know 81. And 
And, and so then I also really wanted to, Richard Ramirez has had this whole crazy afterlife, right? Where he became kind of like the Jim Morrison of serial killers. And I, and it's like, that's kind of horrifying and uncomfortable. And I didn't want to do anything that, um, glorified or extolled this like predator in any way. And so then the decision was, okay, always what happens in these stories is the victims become a statistic in somebody else's murder spree. And it's so dehumanizing when your entire life is reduced to Joyce Nelson, grandmother. Victim number seven. Right. You know, right. And so it was really, really, I literally reached out to every single uh, survivor or victim or family member who lost that, that would take my call. And I said, I would like to return some humanity um, in the public record to those people so that um, your experience and your loved one is treated with respect and as a human being and as a full person. And so I made the decision like, this isn't the Richard Ramirez story. It's the story of the impact of what he did, but I don't want, I I don't want to be in that guy's head. I want to be in, in the heads of the people who survived it miraculously, um, or from the cops who were doing a heroic job at the end of the day. Um, solving brutal murders is a deep, dark, painful place to live and to be your like job site when you go. And whatever the flaws of, of those people, those guys were a force of good in the world, um, in this case and in that story. And I wanted to um, acknowledge that. You know, I look at some of that footage and I, I watched Richard Ramirez and the way he he conducted himself and what they let him get away with. Would they let you wear black sunglasses at, at court where you, uh, it's almost like they let him dress like a movie star. It, it was it was strange. To me. I don't know that you'd see that today. Well, you know, there's a weird little footnote to the story, which is when he was apprehended, this guy had the worst set of teeth that's ever been on like a human being's mouth. And like a bad monster movie. Truly. I mean, like a, a horrible, bad monster movie. And what ended up happening was the trial took so many years, you know, to come to fruition. Um, he eventually had, I believe it may have been on the city's nickel. I don't know exactly whose. He had all of his teeth completely reconstructed so that by the time he appeared on in trial and the image of him is boom, beamed all over the world, he's got like, you know, beautiful new teeth and, and you know, this sort of striking jawbones and the striking look that he had. And it became, and he was acutely aware of, you know, you talk about these lineages he was a student of other serial killers. And so he considered himself in the line of those who had, you know, from Manson to whatever else, you know, going forward. And I think was playing a role too, you know, and that's weird and horrifying and uncomfortable as well, but it's the truth. And there's, you know, the circus of groupies that are there. And that's such a strange thing. In every interview I conducted, you know, you'd always get to that like awkward you know, sort of moment in the interview. And it's like, okay, so this guy ended up becoming sort of essentially like a rock star murderer with like groupies mailing them their underwear and naked pictures, you know, like, how do you, how do you feel about that? And, and nobody could answer it because everybody feels weird and horrible and and icky about it, you know, as, as I did asking the question, but it's a piece of the story. And so it's important to confront it and contend with it. You look at some of the people that would send him things and you look at these pictures that these girls would send. Do you think 
all these years later, what they must be thinking, you know, did you, were you able to track any of those people down or did you look for them or it's just you a know, fascinating I, thing. It's like, here's a person who seemingly on the outside has it all together. And there they are blatantly sitting in the courtroom, almost proud to be there in support of after watching your documentary, I believe he is the closest thing to the devil that's ever walked the face of the earth. Maybe that's been caught. However, it is the level of viciousness and it's, it, it, it's, it's jaw dropping. Yeah. But what, yeah. what do you make of, of, of the groupies and are, do they look back now? Or are they embarrassed? Do they uh, deny that it's them? What do you think? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, we now live in this culture where everything we do is documented, you know, and right. there, and then sort of, and lives forever in the public record. So like, we're now becoming more accustomed to dealing with that at the time. You know, I don't think they're thinking like, oh, this is going to end up on a Netflix show like 30 years from now. Right. You know, it's, it's millions it's, it's of a, people are going to be watching this, right? <laughs> it's it's a crazy, impulsive like decision. Like, oh, my God, that guy looks sexy. It's a, you know, whatever, whatever the attraction is, which is confusing to me to right. begin with. But but, you know, I think people, you know, people are impulsive and do things in a moment in time. And then. And I didn't want to like, sh- you know, shame anybody or rub anybody's right. nose in it or whatever, but nor did I want to shy away from the truth of it. I mean, it, it's, it's there, it's real. How important is archival? Do you look at all the archival first before you decide to do it and go, okay, here's what I have to work with visually and then sort of back into the story. How, how important is archival footage, whatever of it, whether it's the Night Stalker or Operation Odessa or the 7-5 for that matter? How important? It, it, it's a great question because, you know, in, in everything that I've done to date, it's, it becomes an essential piece of the puzzle, right? It's one thing to hear Tarzan say, you know, we sold a submarine to the Kali cartel. It's another thing when he's like, and here's the picture of it. And you're right. just like, holy shit, you know? Um, but at the same time, I think it's all about character and story. Uh, at least initially, most typically what I'm attracted to is who is the who are the people? What is the story? What was the human experience of it? And then the archival, which is an indispensable piece of the equation, becomes let's gather everything that exists and paint from the 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 you know that which has been handed to us. And so that process takes forever and you know is dealing boxes and dealing with the courts and and chasing all this stuff down. And I have a brilliant archival producer I work with on everything. Um, Patty Bobek, who's, who's, who's who I'm working with right now on a couple of projects. Um, and so that's a huge piece of it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think story drives it. If there's a story and there's a character, then I could imagine also making a film, and I haven't done this yet, but I can imagine making a film where it's the most incredible story and character you've ever experienced. And there's no footage because maybe they were an undercover cop. And like they couldn't have pictures of them. If that story is good enough, then there's a way. And one of the great joys and challenges and things that makes you pull your hair out as a as a as a doc filmmaker is okay. What exists? What doesn't? And what are the visual elements that we need to tell the story? So it's both indispensable and yet also I don't think I would walk away from a story if it if there wasn't a, a vast archive. But I love it when there is. Right. You know. I think most people underestimate the amount of work that goes into a documentary. I mean, I, you hear stories about film shoots. Documentary is a shit 
ton of work. It is a shit ton of work. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. How, how long, top to bottom, does it take you? And do you get better at it? In other words, how long did the 7.5 take you? And was it was it more work, less work, easier when you compare the 7.5 to the Night Stalker? Two great movies, it's a, different things. It's, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I hopefully the more you go and the more you work with the same people, you learn stuff. And I try, you know, nowadays to do kind of a postmortem when we get to the end of it. Okay. What do we do? Right. What do we screw up? What could we do better? What's a better methodology? And, you know, we started, um, this is a specific example. Seven, five took forever to make. I think there were 134 different versions of the edit, right? Like after I thought we'd locked picture, we ended up cutting for another year and a half. Um, and so, but sort of, that's what it took to get there. And then as we move forward, increasingly what we're trying to do is, and I, and I, and I say we, cause there's this whole amazing, you know, there's this sort of like myth of the director doing all this stuff. Like I'm only as good as the like amazing group of people that surround me. And I like, I'd go to the, I'd take a bullet for those. That's an important women. thing for the audience to hear that it truly does take a village. And while you're the, the guy managing the the personalities and and making the creative decisions you're as good as the people around you i'll tell you a weird story i was once knocking around with gary Busey. he he he, he told me a brilliant thing that has stuck stu- stuck with me forever he said dude here's the deal on a movie set everybody is a spoke in the wheel and the only thing they give a shit about is their spoke if you're a production designer, you just want the production design to be perfect. If you're a DP, you want the image to be perfect. If you're an actor, you want the performance to be perfect. Everybody is, every department and every artist is just doing their own piece of it. Your job is to be the quiet center of the wheel and to make sure that it turns. And I thought, damn, Busey, you are crazy as a shithouse rat, but that is on the money. I mean, he really is. That's that's exactly what it is. So like you said, so the 7.5 takes forever. Was the Night Stalker easier in a sense? Were you, is there a, could the confidence level change? What, what, how does that work? It's impossibly hard every single time. And right. every time I feel like an imposter, like, okay, they're going to find out this time that I'm like making it up as I go along and, you know, and sort of, you know, a little sort of squirrel nudging along trying to find a nut, which which is kind of the experience of it. But what I will say is... A simple thing that we have done is we used to just shoot everything, go into the edit bay with this morass of sort of footage and then sort of wade through it trying to make something. And increasingly what we're trying to do is very tightly dial it in before we ever shoot a frame of anything so that it's like, okay, here are the characters, here are the story beats, here's where one person tells a piece of the story, somebody else tells the same story and it conflicts but there's an interesting kind of node that ties the two of them together. Or they tell it exactly the same way and you know that they'll intercut perfectly. And so what we've started to do is kind of to write the films before we um, actually begin cutting them so that there's a clear structure. There's a beginning, middle, and end. Um, And you're able to sort of fashion it. You know, I had a conversation with Joe Berlinger recently and he said something to me that really rang my bell. And I was like, dude, what, what's the deal with crime like, and murder? Like why, are we, like, why are we telling these stories? Why are we drawn to them? And he's like, you don't know? And I'm like, no, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> and he goes, it's the perfect story construction. A crime happens. People's lives are changed. There's life and death stakes. The cops come in. The criminal justice system does its work, and there's an ending and an outcome. Person goes to the pen, goes to the electric chair, 
get escapes and gets away with it like Tarzan and his crew, whatever. Um, but either way, it has a it has life and death stakes, and it has a beginning, middle, and end. And that's why crime stories uh, are so compelling as storytellers and as audiences because they have a perfect shape. And I thought, damn, that was like that was worth the conversation alone because Berlinger illuminated something for me that I've been stumbling along doing. But, but wasn't aware of the, the, the structure of. The passion that comes through when you're talking about film, and you know, we talked about the golden age of documentary cinema, which is here. We're all fascinated with it. I just love how passionate you are. I think it's important for people that are filmmakers or aspire to be filmmakers have that because it does take that, right? And so we, we were talking before earlier, we did uh, our opening and we we're ta- talking about After the Doc and it's you talking to other filmmakers about their work and it's this sort of complimentary conversation between filmmakers, but it's not you always sitting there talking about how great your work is. It's you talking to other filmmakers, whether it's Mark Lewis or Emmett Malloy talking just to listen to you speak about it, it's just the, the passion that, that comes through is fun. And, and you do learn these things um, when we talk about the podcast, because not everything can make it into a movie, right? Even things yeah. that you love. Uh, the 7-5 was, was one movie, so two hours, give or take, whatever it was. Night Stalker was, you know, multiple parts, so you have a little more wiggle room. But a couple of the things that I learned in the Night Stalker, I, uh, the, 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 the story that, a couple of stories that stuck with me was, through our cops, Salerno and Gill, watching the movie of the week with starring Lou Diamond Phillips in a room with, with you know, Richard Ramirez. It's just hard to imagine that scene. How, how does something not make the cut like that? Is it, look, you only got a certain amount of time. Something's got to go. You got to kill your kids some once in a while. That's sort of the- it's, 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 it's awful. I hate it. And we, we're still arguing about all these things to this day. Like there's scenes in the 7-5 that Eli's like, dude, I can't believe you took that scene out. And I'm like, dude, we had to, to get the thing done, you know? Right. And, and, and so invariably what happens is, or the, like that scene that you're talking about, which is like, you know, Gil Carrillo and Frank Salerno go in and they're watching the Night Stalker with the- the Night Stalker, you know, and I can't even imagine. Like, yeah, it's hard to wrap your head. I around. heard that story, and I was like, that that goes in. That's the end of the movie, you know, just because it's like it's so surreal. If you were to pitch that in a writer's room, people would be like, "Get out of here, you're a moron. That's a terrible pitch. It would never happen." But because it's true, you're like, it's got to go in. But then what ends up happening is at a certain point, and I keep kind of harping on this because I think it's really true. The material tells you what it's what it wants. Like initially you want everything in and it all goes in and it's 10 hours long and it's absolutely boring and, you know, all over the place. And then little by little, you're paring it away and peeling it away and changing this. And it becomes a process of removal. You know, Barbara Kingsolver, the uh, novelist and, and, and nonfiction writer said, fiction and nonfiction are like exactly identical, you know, inverses of each other, which is in fiction, if you don't put it in there, it doesn't exist. Like you're making Silk Road. And if you don't choose the location or choose what Nick Robinson is wearing, it's not on the screen. Whereas with Night Stalker, it's the opposite of that. It's all of this material. And, you know, you take a piece of wood and carve away everything that doesn't look like a guitar if you're making a guitar, you know? And so that's kind of the, that's the process with it. I mean, I guess, I guess that might have come out of left field while interesting. Maybe, right. right? I could see after watching that, that might've been a little 
maybe take you out of it. I don't know. It's just so over, such overwhelming information. Maybe it would have. Maybe, you know, you made the right call. That's it's interesting to hear you talk about it on the podcast. And we and we sit here and pull our hair out to this day. Like, what about like if you let me cut them forever, I would like go Kubrick on them and just like never stop editing. At some point, you know, like somebody said, films aren't finished, they're abandoned, you know. Right. So or it's or like they don't you okay, don't finish never. eventually, they just take it away from you. That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. There's so much. I mean, you could I always say I would prefer wanting a little more as opposed to uh, that six part could have been six parts could have been four parts, uh, you know, less is more. And that's what was is kind of the interesting thing about the podcast, because it is kind of loose. So you can talk about those sort of things that that you don't have to kind of jam into a story. I mean, it's just the. Well, well and, and what I love, like what I love about like the podcast as a medium is it's unedited. It's right. unfooled with. It's like you're getting access to people. Like they're thinking the thoughts as they're coming out. And so you're getting this unmitigated, unmediated experience of somebody. And I think that's why, you know, people love it as an audience because you're able to enter into it. Like everything is so, and, and I'm guilty of this. Like Night Stalker is super produced, right? Like every inch of that is designed to like, you know, the end of it. Uh, Down the to the helicopter flying at the altitudes that new copters were flying in the 80s. Now that might not that might seem like a trivial detail, but somewhere in your psyche you're seeing it and you're feeling it when you're watching it. It's 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 part of the experience and so like that's the job is to make all those decisions, but then like the joy and the beauty of like the podcast is like man you're just rocking and rolling and you're letting it go and and as an audience member I just and like you talked about the when I talk to those those other filmmakers on After the Dock, I'm a fan, man. You like, are. I love the work, you know? I, I'm, I'm, I'm like the worst movie critic ever. I'm like, dude, it's impossible to make a movie. I love them all. Right, you know? right, right. So, yeah. yeah, no, listen listen to the conversations. It's fun. And I'm sure this is a, a ridiculous question. You don't have to say, but what what's next? Can you tell us? You can't. Got, I can tell by I, your I reaction. Can't, I, can't, I can't quite say it, but I have the next two projects are both at Netflix. and Yeah, are, they are. are two of the most exciting things I've ever come across in my entire life. And I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful to have the chance to like, you know, go do it again and tell these stories on a big canvas. Um, So I'm sorry, I can't tell you the details. I can't wait to bring it. Well, I know, and I'm not going to say it, but. That's right, you know, you know. I I do know, and I will say this, Tiller, this is the best thing and, and congratulations on this because now you look at a story and you're like, okay, well, I know that story, but now it's Tiller Russell's version. And now I want to see it, you know? So that, to me, I, the, again, we're not going to say it. People will know soon enough or they'll know when they know. But I'm excited to hear and see the Tiller version of uh, these next documentaries. And the stakes That's so are sweet raised. of you to say. So That's thank so sweet you, of you, to thank say. you thank very you. much, man. We're a huge fan. And uh, yeah, man, the golden age of documentary cinema is here. And you are at let, the forefront it's, it's of here, it. It's here and let's enjoy it. Let's I, all enjoy it. Thank con- you so much for having me. And bring me back anytime, man. All right, I'll, thanks, I'll, Tiller. Appreciate you, Be brother. Be good, brother. Thank you. All right, welcome back. So that was our interview with Tiller Russell. If you're a true crime fan and you like these movies, you got to listen to this podcast because it's it, it takes the story one step further and uh, you pick up information like Lou Diamond Phillips playing the Night Stalker and the cops showing the Night Stalker to Richard Ramirez. It's, uh, it's pretty surreal. So, I actually want to go see that now. I didn't know there was a Lou Diamond Phillips version. 
yeah, well, it's a, it's a movie of the week. You can watch it on YouTube. Lou Diamond Phillips. It's very early Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, but yeah, it is it is on YouTube. You won't. You're not going to watch that, Dave. Oh, I'll watch it. I, I like the documentary, so. You do. Okay. Well, we got Carla Gugino next week. Doug is back. Kevin Dillon is coming back. I promise you Kevin Dillon is coming back. And um, you'll get to watch Dave. Oh, did you hear? Dave, you weren't listening to the interview. You know, he he's, he's friends with Gary Busey. Did you know that? Really? Yep. He had a great Gary Busey quote that doesn't sound like something that Gary Busey would say, but uh, Tiller Russell does not make these things up. So Was he saying some Buseyisms? No, Tiller did not mention the Buseyisms. He did not, but he said that, Gary Busey said that uh, all parts of production are spoke in the wheel, and the director is at the hub keeping uh, the wheel moving. I butchered that quote, but it was something along those lines. But yeah, Gary Busey, once in a while, he says, uh, he says things that make sense, if you can believe it. I, I can't believe it because what was funny with my experience about Gary Busey is the split second we got into his apartment, normal person, fully conversational, like everything you've seen in public, totally the opposite, completely you, normal and great. Are you implying that Gary Busey is playing a character? I mean, I feel like he, he puts on a show when he leaves his house, but when he was at his house, he was as normal as can be and just like we're think talking he, right now. You think he put on a show in the back of the company car when he was spitting out the window and using mouthwash. You think that no. was off to the camera? You thought, do you think he knew he was on camera? When that stuff happened, he had no idea the camera was on. Right. Now, if you're walking down the street and there's nobody there, we know that Leo knows you. Does Gary Busey recognize you if, you walk, if uh, you're walking down Beverly well, Boulevard? It's been over a year and a half. It would probably take him a couple of seconds, but I think he'd be like, I remember you. You gave me a ride. And I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. If you're walking by, do you stop Gary Busey and say, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Stock Tip Dave. We work together on Victory the Podcast. Of course. You would, right? Yeah, I talk to everybody. Oh, my goodness. All right, before we go, I want to tell one last story with Dave. And if we can, we can cut this out if we need to, because if you don't tell the story in a hurry. So Stock Tip <laughs> Dave is drunk in a bar and somebody, his brother bets him that he won't go talk to Don Johnson. So Dave approaches Don Johnson at the bar, says, what are you drinking? Don Johnson wants a white Russian. He goes, he goes, I don't know. What are you drinking? I said, I want a white Russian. He's like, I'll have that too. So two white Russians are on the way and you have the bright idea of saying to Don Johnson, what? I complimented him on the show Nash Bridges because I generally like that show. But I actually made it a point to, I like to point out obscure things that actors do because they never right. expect it. Right. And, and Don Johnson has a great body of work. He probably thought you were being sarcastic. He doesn't know your personality. You were like, I really like Nash Bridges. And he said, what did he say? Oh, Nash Bridges, huh? Oh, he's like, he's like, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. The bartender returns with two white Russians and Don Johnson says what? He goes, all right, well, now get the fuck out of here. No, drinks are on me. Yeah, he, he, now get the fuck he out goes, of here. You know what? I'm buying these. Now get out of here. <laughs> but going back to the obscure movie reference, I actually made, made an obscure movie reference to uh, Toby one time because he's in the movie The Wizard. He's an, he's an extra in the movie The Wizard with Fred Savage. And he thought about it for a second. He was just like, man, nobody has ever said that to me in my entire life. Well, that's it. That's why you're so obscure. I know. That is the obscurity that is Stockton Day. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Kevin Connolly. I'm Stuck Tip Dave, filling in for Doug Ellen and Kevin Dillon. Follow Action Park Media on Instagram and Victory the Podcast. And at Stock Tip Dave, let's get this guy to a thousand followers. Thanks for joining. See you next week. You tried, you cried, you shouted, you pouted. 
But I told you, I should have thought about it. Think about it. Think, 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 think about it.